0: Welcome to episode two of Bad Gays, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, historian and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history. Each of these characters have incredibly compelling stories and there's value in looking at why people with complicated lives do bad things. Why we're doing this
1: podcast is because the primary emergency of gay history in its first 20 years was to uncover and restore histories of gay movements and gay heroes. And while the culture of academic research has moved on, the public conversation hasn't. We want to complicate this history by talking about evil people and complicated people. We're focusing on men because cis men are definitionally the most bad. And we're asking why we don't remember our villains as well as our heroes. So last week we talked about a gay Nazi.
0: Who are we profiling for episode 2, Hugh? Um, Today we're going to talk about the poet, publisher and famous lover of Oscar Wilde, Lord Alfred Bruce Douglas, who's better known as Bosie. Born in 1870, he comes from this aristocratic family. Um, His father was the 9th Marquess of Queensbury, but he wasn't part of this refined Victorian idea that we might have around British aristocracy. Um, He was at one removed from contemporary uh, British manners. He was a bully. He was an outspoken atheist. He was very aggressive and he was a pugilist. He um, actually gave his names to the Queensby Rules, which is a form of boxing. He was known for having lots of affairs and finally divorcing, and his family was one of um, mental illness and controversy. Uh, Douglass' elder brother was Francis Douglas, the Viscount Drum Lanrig. He was private secretary to the former Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister, the fifth Earl of Rosebery who um, ennobled him in his own right to become the first Baron Kelhead and Lord-in-waiting. And he later died in a shooting accident in 1894, which will become important to the story later. So maybe more of a, you know accident than accident? And, yes, a quotation marks accident. Um, his uncle uh, had a, a deep obsession with his own twin sister. Um, he suffered deeply from mental illness and later killed himself. And uh, the Marcus of Queens- Queensbury himself was an extremely controversial figure, an atheist who couldn't sit in the House of Lords due to his refusal to swear an oath. So is this family appearing regularly in the news for all of these things that are happening? I mean, is this something that's part of a public conversation? Yeah, this, they, they were they were known as a controversial family, not least through the Marcus of Queens- Queensbury himself and his later dealings with Oscar Wilde, which we'll get on to. Yes. Um, and to sort of set the stage for things that will follow, um, it's worth maybe talking a little bit about the law at this time, um, and the specifically laws around homosexuality. Um, there'd been the Buggery Act of fifteen thirty three, which for about four hundred years was the um, was the main law pr- persecuting gay men. And but that was specifically about the act of buggery itself, uh, which required ejaculation. And that was developed uh, during the Reformation by Henry VIII as part of his campaign against the monasteries. But this was repealed in 1828 and replaced with the Offences Against the Person Act, which no longer required ejaculation, just penetration, but the same punishment was in place, which was capital punishment. And later, this was overturned by the 1861 Offences Against the Persons Act. This removed the death penalty but introduced a new crime of gross indecency which criminalised not only all sorts of um, non-anal sex-related sex acts um, but also introduced the idea of a procurement as a crime which means flirting, cruising, asking someone to have sex, etc. Um, and again, this will have vital consequences for our story in the future. Uh, Bosi was 15 when it passed um, and six years later he met the man in whose shadow he still remains, which is Oscar Wilde. So maybe it's worth, at this point, because he was such an important figure in Bosie's life, talking about Oscar Wilde. Uh, Oscar Wilde was born in 1854 to a, an educated, uh, upper-class family in Ireland, in Dublin. His father was a surgeon and his mother was a poet, and it was a very cultured house. Um, his mother was a fervent Irish nationalist, and his father had a deep interest in Irish archaeology. After studying at Trinity College in Dublin, uh, Oscar Wilde won a scholarship to Magdalen College, Oxford, from 1874 to 1878. He returned to Dublin uh, to meet his childhood sweetheart, Florence Balcombe. But in the meantime, she'd become engaged to, and had later married, uh, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. And Bram Stoker himself
1: uh, has some gay rumours, which is interesting. I guess she was sort of a proto-fag hag.
0: Yes, and also um, Bram Stoker uh, later tried to uh, introduce a law to to um, imprison all gay writers in the United Kingdom in 1912. Huh. Part of his cover-up, perhaps. How odd. So disappointed that, um, that she had found an- another man, he vowed to return to England for good. And he started his early career as a poet and a playwright and an author. In Victorian England, he was a major part of the aesthetic movement which was burgeoning at the time who rejected theorists like John Ruskin who regarded art as having some important moral and political component and he instead believed in art for art's sake um, which is which is interesting when you compare that to some of his later writing where he introduces a very deep political and uh, moral aspect to his his writing But his talent for these bon mots, these little phrases, uh, which he became famous for, led him to become a very popular, if mockable, figure. For example, in in university, he once stated, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue china. And it's this sort of um, flamboyance and these these great lines that led him to become a a public speaker and a writer. And in 1882, he did a famous tour of the United States of America, which was hugely popular, which really solidified him as a public figure. Over the next decade, he wrote many short stories and fairy tales. Um, personally, one of my favourites from childhood was The Selfish Giant. And also later, essays and critical writings. Uh, for example, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which was a sort of anti-work, uh, pro-theft, pro-working class, anarcho-socialist style text, which um, ironically made him a huge influence later on with um, with many Bolsheviks. Uh, so, Oscar Wilde, Be Gay, Do Crimes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He supported, for example, in 1886, uh, the Haymarket Martyrs, the anarchists who were accused of starting a riot in Chicago. And he was actually the only literary figure to sign George Bernard Shaw's petition for clemency for the Martyrs. And in this time, um, he started the two other most important relationships of his life. The first was his marriage to Constant Lloyd, with whom he had two sons. And in 1886, he met a 17-year-old called Robbie Ross, who became his closest friend and literary executor, and also probably his first male lover. So, Oscar, like, to the Twinks, we might say, in today's parlance? Well, yeah, we'll come on to that as part of his philosophy later, but yeah, that's definitely the case. Mm -hmm. And around this time, he wrote one of his most famous masterpieces, the novel The Portrait of Dorian Gray. And at the end of the decade, and the start of the 1890s, he began to write plays, including Salome, um, Lady Windermere's Fan, and The Importance of Being Earnest. I think it's interesting, too. I mean, the the German
1: gay movements and figures and sort of gay modernist movements and figures keep coming back um, throughout the first season of this podcast. And it's interesting to mention, I think, that Wilde's play became a sensation in Germany. Uh, it was translated into German by the poet uh, Hugo von Hofmannsthal and became the basis for an opera by Richard Strauss, which Alex Ross and some other cultural historians have talked about as kind of the beginning of uh, the cultural avant-garde of the 20th century in Germany and something that engendered a lot of very passionate um, reactions, both gay and not
0: and it was, um, it was around this time when Bosie first met Wilde. Um, Bosie had uh, started to attend Magdalen College Oxford himself in 1889, long after uh, Wilde had graduated. And he was, as you said, the archetypal twink. Hmm. Um, his biographer, G.A. Savasco, <coughs> um, described him thus. Athletic and handsome, popular of his classmates, he applied himself more to writing verse than to his studies. He did not take a degree. But while at Oxford, he contributed to the Oxford magazine and edited The Spirit Lamp. And this became his career pattern throughout his life as a, a cross between a sort of publisher, an occasional poet and an underachiever. And this is somebody,
1: just to clarify, who doesn't really need to make his own living to move through the world and therefore is free to kind Absolutely, of yeah. occasionally publish and yeah. Dick
0: around a fair bit. And he was aware of Wilde uh, before he met him. He had um, actually praised his uh, his play Salome, which was published in 1891, in The Spirit Lamp, the magazine he edited. And uh, the same year, uh, Wilde and Bosie met for the first time. Wilde was 16 years older than Bosie. Uh, Bosie was 21, but they very quickly began to have an affair. And soon he turned to Wilde for money to fund his sort of lifestyle. And Wilde himself became very involved in that lifestyle of... Um, Boys rent boys, gambling, etc. But there was an intellectual aspect to it as well. Uh, Wilde contributed to some of Douglas's magazines. They, you know, they they talked about their poetry together. Um, perhaps at this point, it's worth talking about Uranian poetry, which was how uh, Boshy described himself as a Uranian poet. Um, it isn't quite fair to say, as you might assume, that Wilde was this older man who seduced a, a young a younger man as such. Um, As a Uranian poet, Bosie was interested in this concept of the Uranian, which was an early concept of homosexuality. The word comes from the Greek goddess Aphrodite Urania, who was said to have been created from Uranus' testicles. And the idea was that they believed that homosexuals were a third gender, essentially women trapped inside a man's body. And in Britain, that idea was taken on by writers like Edward Carpenter and John Addington Simmons, Um, as a form of comradely sort of democratic cross-class love. But the Uranian poets used it to describe a very specific form of pederastic relationship between an older man and a younger man, which was somewhere crossed between um, a teacher and a lover. And they regard this model as as a relationship of, as practiced by the Greeks. And Bosie was already advocating this in his poetry uh, before he had met Oscar Wilde. Hmm. So this relationship was quite discreet almost at the start. I mean, they were, they were meeting and open about it, but hadn't started to make big waves sort of wider, widely at this point. Oscar Wilde had written Salome originally in French and intended to have it translated, and Douglas had asked to do this. And so in 1893, they began this translation, which was to be illustrated by the aesthetic artist Aubrey Beardsley uh unfortunately douglas couldn't really speak french very well and translated it extremely badly (laughs) um beardsley opposed his translation um uh, wilde was sort of stuck in the middle tried to retranslate it or amend his his uh, and correct his translation but it caused a very difficult rift in the relationship and this was kind of the mark of their relationship it was very tempestuous with um Douglas making demands and Wilde trying to meet those demands while still trying to balance his own life with his wife and his own career. Um, In fact, Douglas could be quite cruel towards Wilde. For example, he came and stayed with Oscar Wilde uh, and his family in Worthing on the south coast of England. And uh, whilst there, Douglas became ill. Obviously, his uh, Wilde's wife was not exactly pleased about having this young lover already in the house. He became ill, and Wilde started to look after him and cared for him through this illness. And after recovering, Wilde then became ill. But rather than help him, you know, returning the favour and helping him recover from him his illness, Douglas left, booked himself into the Grand Hotel in Brighton, and then returned once uh, Wilde had recovered on his birthday, and on his birthday as a gift, gave him the bill. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is some very high-octane evil-twink energy. Yeah, that is some evil-twink energy, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, his relationship with his father had reached a crisis point. Um, and in 1894, his father sent him a letter. which I'm going to quote because it um, gives a quite a good taste of their relationship at the time. Alfred, it is extremely painful for me to have to write to you in this strain, I must. But please understand that I decline to receive any answers from you in writing in return. After your recent hysterical and impertinent ones, I refuse to be annoyed of such, and I decline to read any more letters. If you have anything to say, do come here and say it in person. Firstly, am I to understand that, having left Oxford as you did with discredit to yourself, the reasons of which were fully explained to me by your tutor, you now intend to loaf and loll about and do nothing? All the time you were wasting at Oxford, I was put off with an assurance that you were eventually going to go into the civil service or to the foreign office, and then I was put off with an assurance that you were going to the bar. It appears to me that you in- intend to do nothing. I utterly decline, however, to just supply you with sufficient funds to enable you to loaf about. You are preparing a wretched future for yourself, and it would be most cruel and wrong for me to encourage you in this. Secondly, I come to the more painful part of this letter, your intimacy with this man wild. It must either cease or I will disown you and stop all money supplies. I am not going to try and analyse this intimacy, and I make no charge, but to my mind, to pose as a thing is is as bad as to be it. With my own eyes, I saw saw you both in the most loathsome and disgusting relationship as expressed by your manner and expression. Neither in my experience have I seen such a sight as that in your horrible features. No wonder people are talking as they are. Also, I now hear on good authority, but this may be false, that his wife is petitioning to vo- to divorce him for sodomy and other crimes. Is this true, or do you not know of it? If I thought the actual thing was true and it became public property, I should feel quite justified in shooting him on sight. These Christian English cowards and men, as they call themselves, want waking up. Your disgusted so-called father, Queensbury. Oh, good lord. So you can see at this point they're starting to make waves in society by being, let's say, indiscreet at a time when there was... A lot of popular concern around the idea of uh, homosexual corruption. It was coming a few years after the Cleveland Street scandal, which was a a, a, a scandal with sex workers, rent boys at the time, uh, and allegedly uh, involving the Queen's son. And also at the same time, his elder brother, who we referred to earlier, was allegedly in a homosexual relationship with the Prime Minister, Queensbury who he was working as a private secretary for. And this is where his brother's alleged death by shooting accident comes in. It is claimed that at the time, Queensbury was actually blackmailing Rosebury, an attempt to get him to prosecute Oscar Wilde more harshly um, by saying that he would out him, basically, as having a homosexual relationship with, uh, with his other son. And it was during a hunting trip that the younger, the other son, died, either through suicide, it's thought, or perhaps through murder. So is Queensbury's motivation at this point just
1: trying to get his son out of what he sees as the clutches of this immoral older man
0: who's quote-unquote corrupting him? Yeah, that's right. Um, later on, he refers to the fact that both of his sons had been um, had been corrupted by what he referred to as snob queers like Queens, like Rosebury. So that was obviously like he had this idea that his sons were being corrupted, which at the time... Was a sort of common idea of the invert and the pervert, and that he was being his sons were being perverted by these these gay men, hmm. and this reached a head in eighteen ninety five when Queensbury turned up at Oscar Wilde's club, and left his calling card um, accusing him of, now this is controversial either being opposing sodomite or posing as a sodomite. Hmm. You'll remember that earlier in his letter to his son, he said that to pose as something is as bad as to be something. So obviously, he had this idea, perhaps, that they weren't gay. But maybe uh, that was just an attempt to, by his defence to, um, later on in, in a trial, to sort of alleviate that intent. By Wilde's defence or by Queensbury's defence? By Queensbury's defence. This is when, because then the next thing that happens is that Wild sues for libel, right? Right. So having left this card <clears throat> with it written down as a statement, uh, Douglas, who's now furious with his father, um, persuades Oscar Wilde to sue him for libel, which Robbie Ross, who's still a very close friend of of Wilde's, desperately tries to persuade him not to do because he's asking for trouble. But uh, persuaded by Douglas, he goes on to sue Queensbury for libel. And if he hadn't
1: sued him, would the leaving of that card at his club have been a kind of actionable instigation in any way. I mean, would leaving a
0: card in someone's club like that have damaged him? I mean, it could have, it could have damaged his behaviour, but obviously bringing it to public attention and especially then drawing public attention and press attention to your own behaviour is probably not a good idea. Right, it's kind of an early version of the Streisand effect. Exactly, especially if you are, in fact, a sodomite. Well, <laughs> a lot of my best friends are sodomites. Yeah. So anyway, the libel case went ahead, but um, but Queensbury's lawyers did, did some not very deep digging and found, of course, that there were rent boys who were willing to testify against Oscar Wilde. Um, and so Wilde then dropped the case after it became clear that he was probably going to lose it. And as a result, he uh, under English law at a time, he then had to pay Queensbury's fees, which left him bankrupt. So here he was bankrupt after having dropped this libel trial. Things looked pretty terrible for Wilde at this point. But unfortunately, due to the evidence had been raised in court, the state, the Crown, then decided they could prosecute Wilde, not for sodomy, which is obviously hard to, harder to, um, to prosecute at that time. But as we discussed earlier, under this new offence of gross indecency, which Wilde was prosecuted for and found guilty of and sentenced to two years hard labour, which really broke him.
1: So does Douglas's name end up getting dragged into any of this? Because his father is the one who's kind of instigated this whole thing. Um, He obviously doesn't go to hard labor, but does he get trashed in the press? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And then the trial is an interesting moment because Wilde, at the same time, is trying to defend himself, also does make um, a moral, ethical case for homosexuality. And in fact, there's the famous quote, um, which he uses to defend himself. Which has the line "the love that dare not speak his name," which is often attributed to Oscar Wilde as his um, his definition of homosexuality, but actually comes from a Uranian poem written by um, by Douglas himself. Huh.
1: That's very so he, yeah,
0: he originated that phrase. And it's interesting also to think at this
1: time about, and actually ahead in history about the sort of different moments when these public trials, while being really terrible for the people who are wrapped up in them, end up generating conversation that sort of liberalizes attitudes. I mean, only a couple of years later in Germany, you have the Eulenberg affair where people who are involved in um, the court of the Kaiser are wrapped up in a big public trial. And that's actually, um, that trial um, is where Magnus Hirschfeld is called to give evidence. And so that trial becomes a big part of Hirschfeld's kind of coming to public prominence as a figure. Um, And then even later on in the 1960s, actually in some research that I did, um, there were some really horrible homophobic uh, late 60s television programs about homosexuality. The most infamous one being the CBS Reports uh, episode called The Homosexuals, narrated by Mike Douglas. And uh, you find actually in the documents of gay rights groups at that time, um, evidence that people were... Finding the names of groups that were mentioned in a sort of denunciatory way in these in these programs, and then finding their way to the groups, you know,
0: oh, these horrible homosexuals, and you're telling me they meet where? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how can I get in touch with them? And it was similar, actually, in the UK in the 1950s. There was this thing called the Wild Blood affair, which was again an upper class um, gay sex scandal. And uh, one of the participants, Peter Wildblood, went on to write um, against, I think, against the law. I think his name was. But which was um an early def an early defence of homosexuality and actually became key and he became um one of the key witnesses in the inquiry of the um Wolfenden Report. So actually, yeah, again the same thing. These trials could actually can actually instigate social uh, change by creating a public discussion around them. And can you remind us what the Wolfenden Report was, Hugh? The Wolfenden Report was written in nineteen fifty seven, um and it was an inquiry into uh, sex crimes notably um, homosexuality and prostitution and basically advocated for a liberalization of uh, laws around that which in the UK didn't actually take place for over 10 years but was really the key to changing the law around homosexuality.
1: Great so let's get back to Wilde and Douglas who are now after their trial and uh, Wilde's in hard labor and what happens to Lord so, Bosey.
0: Well so yeah Wilde's in in Reading Jail um, and it he, has been broken essentially by this by the, the the physical trauma of the hard labor um and also at the same time writing both uh the ready the ballad of reading jail and then also um de profundis which we'll come back to later which was um which was a poetic account of his relationship with bosi hmm. but um Douglas uh, was forced into exile, which was quite common at the time for gay gay men in England, where they'd go to live in, on the continent where there weren't such restrictive laws around homosexuality, specifically in France and Italy. And um, after Wilde was released in 1897, he moved uh, first to France and then to Naples with Lord Boce, Um And they lived together for a few months, but under the pressure of the relationship and the differences and also the dif- difficulties that Wilde had faced through jail, they then broke up. True evil twink energy is convincing your lover to ruin themselves through
1: a series of frivolous lawsuits that then lead to their imprisonment and then they still come back to you afterwards, <laughs> even if only for a
0: few months. Yeah. Jesus, I wish we were all pretty. <laughs> um, yeah, so they they then broke up and um, Wiles died a couple of years later in 1900 in Paris, um, probably from the after effects largely on his body of the hard labour with um with Robbie Ross, his uh, loyal lover, or ex-lover, by his side. But at this point, Bosie is still loyal to Wilde and also to his Uranian vision of homosexual relationships, and he defends them um, as such at the time. Here's a quote. "'I personally know 40 or 50 men who practice these acts, "'men in the best society, members of the smartest clubs, "'members of Parliament, peers, etc. "'in fact, people of my own social standing.' At Oxford, where I suppose you could admit one is likely to find the pick of the youth of England, I knew hundreds who had these tastes among the undergraduates, not to mention a slight sprinkling of dons. These tastes are perfectly natural congenital tendencies in certain people, a very large minority, and that the law has no right to interfere with these people, provided they do not harm other people, that is to say when there is neither seduction of minors nor brutalisation, and where there is no public outrage on morals. Hmm. But he was the chief mourner at Wilde's funeral. Um, in fact, he had a spat with Robbie Ross over the grave, which later turned into a feud for the rest of their lives. Wilde had sent Robbie Ross a copy of De Profundis with the intention that it would be forwarded to Boesey, but it never was, just a few choice quotes. And that comes up later with, uh, with some of his attitudes towards Ross and towards homosexuality. Hmm. Anyway, life had changed significantly for Bosie at this point and two years later in 1902, he married Olive Custance uh, a sort of bohemian poet I'd say uh, who was bisexual and actually maintained a lesbian relationship throughout their marriage with um, with the godmother of their child Hmm. and for 10 years or so this was sort of the situation they were writing poetry together but in 1911 Douglas converted to Catholicism and his marriage went downhill sharply from that point although he never actually divorced his wife and then with this and then the full release of De Profundis he became increasingly homophobic and turned against the memory of Oscar Wilde and in 1918 there was this incident called the Billing Trial another libel case uh, based around this proto-fascist MP of the time who was an independent MP called Noel Pemberton, Pemberton Billing who ran a very anti-Semitic magazine called Vigilante. And in articles attributed uh, attributed to Pemberton Billing, but actually written by a writer, the deputy editor, who was called Harold Sherwood Spencer, mm. he claimed that there was a German conspiracy to destroy the manhood of Britain through homosexuality. <laughs> and he claimed, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he'd been claimed that they had found uh, a little black book in Berlin. And here's a quote from one of the articles written about this little black book and this conspiracy. Agents were specially enlisted in the Navy, particularly in the engine rooms. These had their special instructions. Incestuous bars were established in Portsmouth and Chatham. In these meeting places, the stamina of British sailors was undermined. More dangerous still, German agents, under the guise of indecent liaison, could obtain information as to the disposition of the fleet. Even to loiter in the streets was not immune. Meretricious agents of the Kaiser were stationed at such places as Marble Arch and Hyde Park Corner. In this black book of sin, details were given of the unnatural defloration of children who were drawn to the parks by the summer evening concerts. Wives of men in supreme position were entangled. In lesbian ecstasy, the most sacred secrets of state were betrayed. Yes. The sexual peculiarities of members of the peerage were used as leverage to open fruitful fields for espionage, end quote. That's wonderful. That sounds like life goals to me. I don't know about you, Hugh. Well, this becomes like a big part of uh, the British relationship of homosexuality throughout the 20th century, which is the feeling that gays were uniquely predisposed to espionage and to being traitors. And this is also part of the Lavender Scare in the U.S. in the
1: 1950s, which accompanies the Red Scare in which homosexuals and uh, suspected communists are purged in enormous numbers from the State Department. Um And it's also, I think, interesting to note the relationship between this and World War I and how sort of inconsistent the fears are between these far-right figures in these different countries. So like in Germany, you have this fear that these homosexuals are undermining the sort of German National Masculine Project. And in England, it's the German National Project is related to this homosexuality that's undermining the British National Masculine Project.
0: Absolutely. And actually, um, it's been suggested that actually this conspiracy was given credence precisely because this, the British had this idea that Germans, such as Hirschfeld, had a, a peculiar thing about cataloguing homosexuals. So the Black Book was seen to be... Yeah, that seems likely. It sounds like the sort of thing a German would do. Anyway, in an article in, in The Vigilante um, called The Cult of the Clitoris, Uh, Pemberton Billing accused the actress Maud Allen, who was actually performing in a performance of Wilde's Salome at the time, of being a lesbian co-conspirator. Of course, she sued um, and Lord Douglas testified in Billing's defence and incredibly, I don't know quite how, Billing won the libel case. Hmm. Um, And in the case, Oscar Wilde was obviously the subject of it, not at least because of Salome. Mm -hmm. And... In it, he, uh, Douglas ruled the day that he'd met Wilde and called him the greatest force for evil that has appeared in Europe during the last 350 years. Which oh, is, good God. Yeah, an over-exaggeration, at least. <laughs> Two years later, in 1920, Douglas and Sherwood Spencer went on to found the magazine Plain English, which was deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Um, it advertised copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was... Um, very anti-leftist, very anti-Irish. It's alleged that Lord Kitchener, the field marshal whose boat was sunk in 1916 off Orkney in Scotland and who died, had actually been murdered by a conspiracy of Jews, etc, etc. He also accused Winston Churchill of being part of a Jewish conspiracy to falsify war reports in order that um, Jewish bankers could make profits on British armament securities. He was sued by Churchill, who won. He actually uh, his, he won in the case an entire house full of furniture. That was his payment. Hmm. And he also attempted to sue Arthur Ransom for statements that he had made about Bosie in his biography of Oscar Wilde. but he also lost that case. He was then uh, imprisoned in 1924 as a result, and after this, his opinions on Wilde and his anti-Semitism did begin to soften a little, um, but he lived out the rest of his life in relative obscurity, and he died poor in 1945, living with friends at the age of 74, and only two people attended his funeral.
1: So evil twinks
0: come to sad, lonely ends, is I guess what we've learned, right? Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors, and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell, and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out.
1: And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com badgayspod. That's patreo dot badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh, and
0: some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated, and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. And saying Nice Things is always
1: free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. So now comes the part where we have some sort of questions in conversation. So the first thing I wonder from that, and maybe this is more of a social or factual detail than a theoretical question, but did Wilde's wife know what was going on between her husband and this evil twink?
0: She did, yeah. It's uncertain when she quite became aware of their homosexuality, but certainly by the middle of uh, 1891, um, she knew that... um, that Bossy was visiting Wilde, and Wilde began to live more and more in hotels, and they became sort of sexually estranged. Um, according to their son Vivian, who wrote in his autobiography, they remained on good terms, although obviously it must have been difficult difficult, you know, upsetting at the time. Um, but yeah, they, they they did remain on on, on reasonably good terms. And she actually apparently did fall in love a couple of years later for a brief period with one of his publishers, although um, nothing came of it. She died two years before Wilde, actually. Um, They're not entirely sure why. They think now perhaps it was probably multiple sclerosis. But at this point, she'd moved abroad with her sons and she'd given them a new name in order to distance them from the scandal of, of Oscar Wilde's life.
1: Hmm. So maybe as the next question, just to think about the relationship between what we talked about here and what we talked about in the last episode, there's maybe this link that we're seeing form between radical right or even fascist politics and this vision of homosexuality that's related to this kind of Grecian... I don't know if we want to call it a cult of beautiful youth. I mean, in in the German context, it was this very sort of masculinist vision where everyone is very, very butch. And I don't know if... Butch is the first word that comes to mind when we talk about Wilde and Bosie. And I, Wilde certainly himself has very different politics, but um, maybe thinking about connections rather than just disjuncture between Bosie's later-in-life politics and his earlier-in-life understanding of how his sexuality worked. Do you see a link there?
0: I'm not sure, because the Iranian idea was very much based around, uh, not, not a militarism, but a sort of softer, educational, pl- like literally platonic from Plato form of pederastic relationship. And a lot of the Uranians did have very left-wing politics, Wilde, of course, being one of them, Edward Carpenter being another, um, for their time. And in the UK, were associated with perhaps a much softer, comradely, uh, Whitman-esque form of, of um, cross-class, um, socialist bro- brotherhood as their form, which fit into much more of that English tradition. Um, and then Bose's later anti-Semitism and racism, um, I think, and anti-Irish aspects, I think come after he'd renounced his homosexuality and homosexuality in general, um, in that period where he was sort of trying to reinvent his life in his sense of masculinity and perhaps... You know, that was one of the forceful ways he did it was by reengaging with a patriotic, anti-Semitic, you know, racist approach to his politics. I don't know. I don't know if it has the same link as, say, with Chaim in the last episode.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Because it's interesting, one of the things that jumps out to
1: me, I mean, when I think of Wilde and when I think of Edward Carpenter, as you mentioned, I think about this um, cross-class kind of ecstatic brotherhood vision But then in that letter you quoted, he writes about uh, how homosexuality is present even among people of my social standing. He talks about uh, students at Oxford and dons at Oxford and is very explicitly, I think, calling to the idea that there are people like him with a kind of high class status. And is that maybe kind of where the beginning of some of this um, right wing
0: turn might lie or would that be being too general? Um. I certainly think it's possible. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that um, Alfred Douglas was not on the same intellectual or political level of uh, intelligence or creativity as Carpenter or Wild, um, and probably recreated much more the privileges of his time rather than challenging them as Carpenter did. Um, but yeah, there the also fits into that, and later his conversion to Catholicism is this particular um, upper class English aspects towards a um, a homosexual culture is more refined and isn't the base sexual culture of the working classes, which plays out a lot more later in the 20th century, um, Evelyn Waugh being a good example of writing about this sort of distinction. But then later, this popular understanding of there being two forms of homosexual behaviour, the invert and inversion, which is the born homosexual who is a feat wishes to be a woman, for example, is the passive rela- relation sex, who tends to be in the English imaginary, middle class or upper class. And then the pervert, who is perverted into sex acts through their inability, their low morality or their inability to say no, by the invert, who are real men, who, are, let's just say, frankly, would fuck anything. And so they're perverted into the homosexuality hmm. through, the, through those acts. And that distinction in English culture becomes a class distinction quite early on um, and there are a lot of the writers who uh, are, con- are sort of working against that for example Carpenter or later E.M. Forster perhaps tried to reclaim the idea of a cross-class relationship as being um, an authentic comradely relationship against that split between the pathetic invert who can't help themselves and then the loose moraled working class pervert who isn't Morally strong enough to withstand those um, attentions,
1: and in *De Profundis*, does Wilde reflect at all on the difference in kind of intellectuality or political commitment between him and Bosie? I mean, is is any of that book about him thinking, kind of, "Oh God, what did I
0: do? Falling in
1: love with this asshole?"
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um. It's a book of two halves, but the the, the basic idea of the book is uh, the self-realisation, the process of uh, understanding how he ended up in prison, and then what the process of being in the second half is what the process of being in prison has done to uh, illuminate himself by his position. But yeah, in the first half, he's very much uh, condemning both his vanity and his own weakness in not standing up to that vanity. And also, yeah, of course, like the... The, the lustful, uh, non-intellectual relationship that they had, the fact that it was kind of based mainly around uh, an attraction.
1: Hmm. So, Hugh, what's your verdict? Uh, Lord Bosie, bad gay or not bad gay? Uh,
0: that's a tough one because I think he came from a very difficult childhood. But I think if you combine the and later anti-Semitism with his clear... Uh, the fact he clearly caused harm to people willingly who obviously loved him. I'm going to say bad gay. I'm going to say bad gay and your prototype evil twink,
1: which is a theme that I think will keep coming back. So if people want to read more uh, or sort of find out where you sourced a lot of this amazing information, where would they want
0: to turn? Well, De Profundis is a great start, which is his letter um, from jail, um, which is still still in print. There's also Wilde's letter from jail, letter from jail. From jail yeah. Um there's also uh, Oscar Wilde, His Life and Confessions by Frank Harris. Um Philip Hall wrote uh, uh, wrote a book about the billing, uh, Pemberton Billing trial called Oscar Wilde's Last Stand. Um there is the book Bosey by Douglas Murray. And there's also um a, bio, a biography by uh, a guy called H. Montgomery Hyde, who has come up in my research before, as a fascinating figure. He was an Ulster Unionist MP who was actually one of the first to really advocate for law reform around homosexuality in the UK. As a result, he lost his uh, lost his he was deselected for the Ulster Unionist Party, who are right wing uh, Northern Irish Protestant party, um, and went on to write the first history of homosexuality in the UK, which touched on some of the issues. Huh.
1: Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been Bad Gays Podcast. If you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon, as we've described earlier in the episode. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at Bad Gaze Pod. Or at Hugh Lemmy. How do you spell your name, Hugh? H U W L E M E Y. Or you can follow me at, at Ben Writes Things. Thanks so much. Thank you.